Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. That's Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, which is premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Now, today on the show, I'm talking to Dermot McCulloch. Dermot is an award-winning historian and academic specialising in church history. He's presented a number of BBC documentary series and authored many books, including A History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years, and Thomas Cranmer, A Life. Dermot, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Have you always been interested in history? Yes, very much so. Uh, My father was a country parson and uh, by training a chemist, but really he was passionate about history. So from a very early age, uh, we as a family went to historic places. We talked about history as other families might talk about football. So it was just one of those things I grew up uh, with. And in a country parish with two beautiful medieval churches living in the old rectory, Regency House, Tudor, no money, rambling glebe around it. All those things meant that I was very aware of the past. And out of that grew a fascination with the past, mm. which luckily people now pay me to talk about. <laughs> they do indeed. Uh, what was family like? You, you mentioned sort of Christian upbringing and background. Yes. Was that quite strong? Uh, very much so, yes. My father was a Scottish Episcopalian, which means Anglican, of course. So when he ceased to be an army chaplain, which he was for 25 years during the war and afterwards, he got a country parish in Suffolk. Uh, so it was a very particular sort of Christianity, uh, the thoughtful uh, Anglicanism uh, in a very traditional setting, which was, of course, changing. Uh, the old world of the squire, the squire's pew, deference, were actually all dying around us uh, when we were there. This is the late 1950s into the 1960s. So I saw a certain sort of Christianity die uh, and, and something else replace it. So my father's church is still there and very lively, but it's different. Meanwhile, I went to university and found all sorts of other Christianities. You did indeed. Um, You mentioned the church changing. In what way did it change? Well, the Church of England was very much the established church. Uh, There was actually a Baptist chapel in the village, uh, which was from a very different tradition with a very different ethos. It's a voluntary church. So there are two rather uneasy forms of traditional Protestantism alongside each other there. Uh, and uh, with the, the parson living in the great rectory where his predecessors lived, uh, with a history of names of his predecessors going back to the 13th century, wow. there's a great sense that you're rooted. Uh, now, a lot of Christianities these days are not like that. Mm. Uh, and many people fi- find solace in church because it takes them out of their situation. Well, I was very happy with that childhood situation. It was a a wonderful childhood to which I look back with great nostalgia. And the church was just part of it. Mm. I I think probably still I am at my most tranquil and happy in an ancient parish church. Mm. I play the organ 
And so the organ is also part of that. Uh, I can't imagine life without it. Mm. And quite a comfortable marriage there, I suppose, between Christianity and history, those those two things almost being presented to you together with that sense of history with your with your father as well in in coming from that sort of long line of Christians have worshipped in this church. Yes indeed and what gradually I got out of that and even as a child was how the church changes over time. Here was a, a building which was, oh, was sermon in stone no question. It had bits from this period, bits from that period and each of them represented a different sort of Christianity. And as I said, that this Christianity was changing mm. around my father in, in, in perhaps a rather depressing way at the time because uh, an old world with all sorts of certainties was going. Uh, people no longer went to church because it was the thing to do. Mm. Uh, it was an uncomfortable time in the life of Christian churches generally in this mm. country. Mm. You say you went off to university, you studied history at Cambridge. What was university life like? Well, it was anything you made it. That's the, the huge, wonderful thing about university life. People are becoming adults. They're finding out who they are. And universities give you the chance to change dramatically. You can go in any direction, all sorts of activities. And at the same time, you're learning very fast. You're learning uh, academically, mm. but you're learning also emotionally. You're, you're learning to how to deal with people. Mm. So it, once more, it was a very intense uh, and marvellous experience being an undergraduate and then a postgraduate, mm. all at the same college. I spent nine years right. in the same Cambridge College, ending up with a doctorate and being a, a junior fellow of the college. So that, again, was a, a very interesting grounding to which I look back with enormous affection. Mm. At what point in all of that studying did you realise that, I guess, your career would be in, in that field, in history and in teaching um, and in academia as well? I guess after graduating, I got a first, and that's the sort of thing you need to be an academic, mm. and I realised how much I enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, in those days, it was quite a new thought to do a, a little thesis as part of your undergraduate degree. It's very standard now. But I, I did that and loved the research. And what was that on? Uh, it was actually about the county I came from. I'd grown okay. up in Suffolk. Right. And it was about uh, a, a tiny fragment of Suffolk history, which is about the way that Roman Catholics, after the Reformation, had tried to find a new place in this county society. Mm. Uh, and uh, there it is. There is one or two sentences I've used again in my <laughs> books, just as a little <laughs> joke to myself. That's nice. To keep myself in touch with that background. <laughs> you took a break, though, from some of what you're involved in in terms of the history side of things, and you studied theology. What led to that decision? Um, I mean, did you see it as a change in focus? Maybe, maybe you didn't go from history to, to theology. Oh, I saw it was related. Uh, when I decided that uh, ordination might be the way forward for me, uh, I actually was actually teaching in a theological college, a Methodist college, another sort of experience. Mm. Uh, but in the middle of that, I went away to an Anglican college, Ripon College, Cudston, and studied uh, for the, the ministry there. Uh, and some of that study was, of course, history, but lots wasn't. Mm. It, it, were, well, it was a whole set of new things, theology, pastoral studies alongside that. So all sorts of new directions opened up. Uh, in which history was very useful. Mm. And it gave me a perspective on biblical study, for instance, mm. uh, which I might have had to learn from scratch if I'd not had that background. Mm. And was all that studying 
to your mind at least, very much with a view to some kind of pastoral ministry. Yes, and so I started on that, uh, and things went in a different direction. But uh, it's extraordinary how much of that pastoral experience is part of the academic life as well. Mm. In what way? Uh, You are dealing with people. Mm. And very often you're dealing with people at a rather vulnerable stage of their lives, as undergraduates or postgraduates. They're changing very rapidly. Uh, Very often they're intellectual academic advance has been rather quicker than their emotional advance. So very often you're simply there to pick up a few pieces uh, among the many resources that they've got in pastoral ways, particularly in Oxford or Cambridge, where we we lay on a lot of pastoral care. Mm. You did uh, become a deacon. I did. But you couldn't progress any further than that. Can you tell us the story of what happened? Yes, well, I'm a gay man, and I knew that already, so I went into ordination completely openly. It was a bit difficult, but I had a, a bishop who supported me into it. Mm-hmm. But it became apparent once I was a deacon that the church was not in the place that I was, and I was not prepared to lie about this. Uh, it seems to me that honesty and truth are an essential part of the Christian life. So it was inevitable and very, very painful that I could not... Uh, progress beyond being a deacon at that stage and Mm. I'm still a deacon who Mm. knows what will happen in the future Mm. I'm only 65 (laughs) who knows what the future (laughs) holds Uh, but that meant that uh, what I did was to go back to uh, the uh, job in a theological college which I Mm. had and also go on exploring the uh, range of history which I could gradually expand on So that first rather detailed study of the 16th century expanded first to the whole Reformation of the 16th century, but then beyond that Mm. to look at the whole of Christian history. Mm. The the rules, though, surrounding um, the Church of England and homosexuality, I mean, a number of people will say they can't really get their head around it. They're not really sure where where the church really stands on these these issues. Was it very clear cut for you at the time that there was just no way to be ordained and to be a gay man? Yes, the church had not really caught up with reality. And uh, it's it's taken a long time for it to do so. Because today, of course, you have gay people who are... uh, you know, ministering in the Church of England. Yeah, but there, it is not a level playing field. We've seen the, the way in which Geoffrey John, an outstanding priest, has been prevented again and again from being a bishop, first in the Church of England and then in the Church in Wales. And that's simply because he is an out gay man who is perfectly at ease with himself. And for some people, that's very threatening. It's for some gay people in the church and some gay bishops, that is very threatening. And uh, Geoffrey has suffered because of that. Uh, The Church of England and the Church in Wales, the Anglican Church, is having a lot of problems aligning itself with what I would see was reality and truth and compassion. Mm. Taken a long time. I can see why. And that's one, uh, one of the reasons is that social change has been extraordinarily rapid in this country, quite astonishingly rapid in my lifetime. Uh, When I was a boy, all sorts of male homosexuality was illegal. It was a crime. Mm -hmm. And now, in uh, uh, this present dissertation, uh, equal marriage is there on the statute book, and it's not going to change. Now, the church has only had 50 years to confront that, think about it, and it is a healthy instinct Mm -hmm. in churches not to go too fast 
in terms of social change. Uh, you know, the bride of the church, uh, of, of the society today is the widow of tomorrow. That's a healthy idea. But at some point you have to say, yep, we are faced now with a new reality. We've got to find a way of giving a traditional message in a way which is also realistic and fits facts. So from your perspective, what would the Church of England have to do in order for you to feel comfortable about going from going forward, basically, with, yeah. with ordination? I'd want to see a level playing field in every sense. I'd want to see the Church accepting equal marriage, uh, and I'd want to see there not even being an issue mm. about uh, a gay woman or a gay man becoming a leader in the Church. And until that happens, uh, the Church is in trouble. And it is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, better to be slightly on the outside of it. I actually have a rule which um, uh, cathedrals and archdeacons and bishops have found out to their cost. Uh, when they ask me to speak, as they frequently do, particularly this year of the Reformation, I say, I'm sorry, can't do that. I have set a piece of enacted prophecy up, which is that I will not speak on Church of England occasions until the Church of England uh, corporately repents of what it did to Dr. Geoffrey John. Right. And until that happens, sorry, uh, I've got better things to do with my time. I've got a rather nice file of embarrassed replies to this email. From a traditional perspective or conservative perspective, the argument might be, well, this isn't simply a case of how the church treats people, because there seems to be broad agreement, even from the conservative side, that there has been real cases of homophobia and, and that, that cannot stand. Yeah. But on the actual theology of the issue, when it comes to interpreting scripture, do you understand why there are those who read Paul, read the New Testament and say, I just don't see how the Bible can allow for gay relationships. Yeah, I understand it, because of course I came from that situation, conservative background. Uh, you just need to look at the Bible in a, a, a broader way, and you also need to be uh, prepared to say that the Bible is wrong on things. It's simply wrong. It was wrong in its acceptance that slavery was part of the fabric of God's creation. It was wrong in the New Testament when it blamed the Jews for being Christ killers. Now, you, you can't get away from the fact that the Bible has those perspectives in it. And you've got to say, they're wrong. Uh, it's very interesting watching the churches changing on slavery. Uh, every Christian in the world accepted the existence of slavery in 1600. Not a good thing, but simply part of the fabric of the world. And who are the people who first decided that was not an acceptable way of looking at the problem, Quakers. And the reason it was Quakers was that they already thought that the Bible did not have the sort of authority uh, which people thought it did. Mm. Then evangelicals caught up after that. Uh, they, they, they had to uh, get rid of that idea that the Bible's uh, perspective on slavery was the only way of looking at things, and it took a lot of effort so, for instance, in the American Civil War in the 19th century, the war was fought about slavery, but it was also fought between evangelical Christians. In the South and the North, they shared a common evangelical mm. Protestantism. And the Christians in the South were perfectly entitled to say, the Bible supports our point of view on slavery, and perfectly entitled to be extremely puzzled and annoyed that northern 
Protestant evangelicals did not share their point of view. So that's an example right. of how history tells you that you can't take a simple view on mm. the Bible. Just, just to be clear on your position, your no. position is the Bible got it wrong. I, I think Paul was against gay relationships as he understood them, which he didn't. All he had uh, in mind was a set of unequal relationships beyond Jewish culture within Greco-Roman culture around him. He had no concept of what we see in 21st century Britain, which is that of equal, loving, faithful partnerships. Plenty of other things as well, but that's the reality. Equal, loving, uh, same-sex partnerships, which are simply not conceived of in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. So uh, the Bible isn't giving any guidance in that specific way. What does Jesus Christ say about slavery? Uh, what he says, some things. He actually accepts it. What's he say about homosexuality? Nothing. So in some circumstances, you've got to construct a Christian way of looking at uh, a moral problem, which may not actually have any guidelines within the library of books, which is the Bible. Mm. But bringing it back to uh, your experience, did you experience homophobia from, from Christians or, or non-Christians from an early age? Was this something you were aware of quite young? Not particularly, apart from the, the constant barrage of homophobic remarks in the world in general. It was more a cultural... Yes, I mean, in, in, in the 1960s, you didn't talk about that sort of thing. Mm. In the 1970s, there were comedians you could laugh at. Right. After that, uh, the churches began to un uneasily to realise that society was changing much more rapidly than they were. And for many people within the church, that meant that they were caught like rabbits in the headlights. Bishops were caught like rabbits in the headlights. They did not know what to do. And it was at that stage that I was going forward for the ministry. And I could say, I guess, that I experienced homophobia in that I was refused ordination to the priesthood. But I sort of sympathized with the people who were doing it. I saw that they, they were trapped uh, in a cultural situation uh, which was not of their own making. So I, perhaps they, they wanted to put you forward for ordination, but they felt oh, unable to? Oh, yes. If I'd kept quiet, it would have been fine. Right. Don't ask, don't tell. And I saw around me plenty of gay men going forward who were keeping quiet. But it seems to me that that damages your ministry. Ministry is about truth. If you cannot present uh, an attitude of truth, integrity in your outward ministry to people, then your ministry is in trouble. And we've seen plenty of examples of that with sexuality gone to the bad, with people who just don't have a morality of their sexuality behaving in profoundly lawless ways. And that has been tremendously damaging for the church. People up to the level of bishops have betrayed trust because they don't know how to express trust and integrity in their public lives. And what do you put that down to? Well, I put it down to centuries of being slightly on the wrong tack. And what we have to realise is that uh, people can be wrong for centuries. Human society can be wrong for centuries. And the Bible is a library of books which has particular contexts in particular societies and yet its experience in terms of Christian understanding and human understanding is no more than about 3,000 years. Mm. The earliest texts were written about 3,000 years ago. Now, that is an incredibly short time in Christian history. 
We are, we're not a long-ranging uh, uh, species. We've only really been around for 80,000 years, but 80,000 is large in comparison with 3,000. Christianity is a young faith, and you would not expect it to get things right immediately. And we're talking immediately, only 2,000 years after the death of Jesus Christ. You've said before that you love the Church of England in a grumpy fashion. Yes. Is that because of what we've just been talking about, about sexuality and that whole issue sort of clouding perhaps your view of the Church of England? Understandably clouding it. Partly, yes, but there are, there are lots of things to be grumpy about in a, a church generally. It will always be uh, a lumbering, clunky organisation because it's a human organisation. But it will also be the body of Christ. All Christians must see the church as the body of Christ. But the corollary of that, the necessary uh, rider of that, is that the body of Christ is full of wounds. And those wounds are the stupidity and clumsiness and incompetence of its members. And you see that around you in the church. It's an organisation with power. And human beings misuse power, particularly when they get in positions of power. And one of the reasons I'm grumpy about the church is very often that I see power being misused. And the obvious example is, of course, sexuality Mm. and how to cope with it and how not to cope with it. It strikes me as interesting that you, um, you know, you're, you're part of this organisation that obviously are very happy to criticise, and that you're you're grumpy about it because you're aware of of some of the current contemporary problems as you see them. Mm. It strikes me as interesting because, of course, you're also a church historian, yeah. and looking back over church history, um, many people, including myself, who's by no means an expert, but I've read a couple of books on church history. When I look at the history of the church, it does make for very depressing reading. Doesn't it? It doesn't it just, it's a story of incompetence and anger and bigotry and crushing stupidity and wars and popes who even today's Catholics would agree did some terrible things. It's precisely all those things. And of course it's also other things too. It's a story of beauty and tranquility and exploration. But uh, the, the, the thought you've just had is precisely the thought that a lot of my students had uh, in Wesley College, Bristol, where I used to teach. I remember one student who was a very straightforward young lad, and at the end of one particularly involved session on the early church, he said to me in despair, well, where is the gospel in all this? Hmm. And I said to him, the, the gospel, the good news in all this is that the church is still there. Hmm. And you wouldn't think it. Mm-hmm. to uh, see the story I've just told you. It is an identifying story in many ways, but that church has survived. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to ask you specifically about the early church, because, again, obviously an area that you've spent a huge amount of time studying. Mm. Um, and I've heard it said by some, I guess, Christian apologists or some Christian preachers that the fact that Christianity grew so quickly from just a handful of people who believed in the resurrection. It then grew to becoming the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, um, you know, within within a few hundred years. People have claimed that that growth is in some way miraculous, or at least proves that Jesus was who he says he was. A kind of supernatural element to how the early church could grow so quickly. I wanted to get your take on that. Is that... Is that a helpful way of thinking about the early church growth? Well, it may be, it may not be, because you could point to other great world faiths who've, which have grown ex- even quicker. Islam, for instance, whose expansion, early expansion, is remarkably quick. So I'm not, I'm not sure that I've ever bought that argument. Uh, the, the history of the early church is much more obscure than we think it is. 
there is very little apart from the text in the New Testament. And within those texts, you can see conflict. Uh, you, you can see evasiveness in some respects. So it's very difficult to know the early stages. And of course, it is presented as a story of remarkable expansion. The book of Acts, for mm. instance, mm. which frankly I would regard as an historical novel. Uh, and one has to take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, and even in the book of Acts, you see conflict. Uh, and the story of the early centuries is a story of continuous conflict mm. around this fascinating, baffling idea that a human being can be God. Mm. And they spent four centuries arguing about that, how it can be. And their answers satisfied them in the fourth and fifth centuries, but may not now. Mm. I was going to say it's still a debate today amongst people of... Uh, people who call themselves Christians and people who don't. I can particularly think of some conversation I've heard between Christians and Muslims. This is a, a huge sticking point for a number of Muslims. How can you believe that this man was God? Yeah. What were the? Why do you say that the answers that were given in book, you know, the Book of Acts, for example, no longer um, would resonate with people today? Well, partly as a matter of language. Uh, and there are words which we still use about the Trinity which have changed their meanings. Uh, it's that word person, three persons in one God. Well, what was a person in the Roman world? A persona was a theatrical mask. Uh, those things you see in theatres today, one mm. with a tragic face and one mm. with a comic face. And so actually what the early theologians were saying is God is like three theatrical masks in the, on the same unity. Now, that's not what we mean by person. A person mm. is you. A mm. person is me. Yeah. We are autonomous beings. We are separate. So we are actually looking at a problem with anachronistic eyes. Uh, nevertheless, at the center of that thought is one extraordinary distinctive Christian thought, three-in-oneness, mm. uh, a thought which actually is only partly visible in the Bible. The Trinity is not obvious in the Bible. It's an evolution of thought based on experience. The experience of the first Christians was that they experienced their God through Jesus, but also through creatorness, creationness, and through a sense of free-flowing energy. And those three things, someone who looked like a human being, a creator, and free-flowing energy, are the persons of the Trinity. Spirit, Father, Son. So there are, there are thoughts which mm. are still there at the centre of Christianity, but we, which may need a different way of expressing them. But the great thing is to know where they come from. Well, that brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Dermot McCulloch, but do stick around. We'll be right back after this. Whatever happened to the promised revival? In the latest Premier Christianity magazine, New Frontiers leader Terry Virgo asks whether it's time to reignite revival hopes as he looks at moves of God, past, present and future. Plus, from Justin Welby to the HDB effect, we examine how evangelicals took over the Church of England. Find out why adoption turned Krish Kandaya's life and theology upside down and meet Christina Dean, 
pioneering fashion designer who scours rubbish tips to create ethical clothing. All that plus much more. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Good afternoon. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales and this afternoon I'm in conversation with Dermot McCulloch. Let's listen in to the second part of my interview. The much quoted phrase, um, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, or, or just that idea that you can't understand the Bible until you understand some of the cultural context of the time. Uh, it, it seems to me that this is something that more and more Christians are cottoning onto. this idea that actually history may not be as sort of... Uh, um, irrelevant as they might have assumed but it's only until you understand the historical culture and context specifically of scripture often or indeed of church history that you can really get at the heart of something within your own faith. Absolutely right in every respect and that is because uh, many people come to Christianity anew particularly these days they don't have a Christian background and they they fall in love with Jesus with the faith and that is exactly like falling in love it's the most wonderful experience you can have. But you don't stay there if love lasts. Mm. You move on. You find that this wonderful, wonderful person that you've fallen in love with has a history. And they have a, 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 a whole set of aspects to them which you'd not noticed when you were in that first wonderful, passionate experience. And the church is like that. You can be in the first generation and Christians... In, in every age, experience the church as brand new. But actually, you can't stay there. You need to move on. And one thing you need to do is to learn the backstory, just as you learn the backstory of your beloved, and see why they behave in often, apparently, rather surprising ways. <laughs> so, history is, is absolutely essential. What it does is give you sanity. And not knowing history is a fine recipe for insanity in the church. It's a fascinating thing to say that if we don't know history, it can lead to insanity. It's quite a claim, isn't it? It is, but uh, it's absolutely true, and that's why history is so important. The fact is you cannot be balanced if you don't have at least a balanced outline of the past. And you can also tell yourself mad and dangerous stories about the past. So there are mad and bad Protestant stories about the past. There are mad and bad Catholic ones. Mm. And they produce mad and bad people and mad and bad religion. Just think of the Reformation here, which at the centre of it had uh, a, a, a fact, which was that Queen Mary Tudor, a Catholic, burned 250 to 300 Protestants in her reign. And that became something so central to English Protestant life that English Protestants hated Catholics. And often they massacred Catholics, for instance, in Ireland in the 1650s. They killed Catholics for being Catholics. And that came from just concentrating on one single fact in the historical past and not seeing, for instance, that Protestants had burned other Protestants. Uh, Protestants burned people who denied the Trinity. So you need to see a much wider picture. Mm. You know, to stop you acting in a wild, irresponsible way. Mm. Uh, that kind of mad and bad history, doesn't that often somehow rise to the sort of popular level? And you may have academics in the background doing excellent historical work, but the kind of books that people were picking up off airport bookshelves or, you know, dare I even mention it, a, a book like... Uh, some of the Dan Brown material, yeah. where people appear to, to read the Da Vinci Code as if it's history yeah. rather than it's a novel. Is there a sense that sometimes 
that the history that isn't so well thought through can still permeate on a popular level whilst the more accurate stuff is being left to the academics in the background. Yes, it it can, and that's very dangerous indeed. I mean, Dan Brown is drivel, uh, and and terribly badly written drivel as well. Uh, The real story is much more interesting than Dan Brown, but it needs to be told properly. Uh, There are academics in the back room, like I was when I was young, who need to to excavate the material. They need to write their footnotes in a very careful academic way. But that's a substructure on telling that story in a way that ordinary people can understand. I mean, that's one of the reasons I went into working in radio and television, that you need to get the right story in order to banish the wrong story. And I say wrong story, I mean stories which are um, maliciously and stupidly skewed. There is a limit, of course, how how much you can tell people. Mm. So the, the, the radio and television historian's motto must always be too much information. Right, yeah. But you need to select from the information you have what people really ought to know for balance. Mm. Is the, you mentioned this, this radio and TV work you've done, most notably on the BBC. You've done some incredibly um, you know, critically acclaimed work in terms of the broadcasting work you've done, uh, including on the history of, of Christianity. Because it is so different, isn't it, from doing the kind of research in universities to then broadcasting to a popular level audience. Is that quite hard? To, it, to it's hard, that? but uh, I, I returned to my very first job after leaving Cambridge, which was in this Methodist Theological College, alas, no longer there, Wesley College, Bristol. And the great thing about this job was that I was teaching church history and a staff of seven. I was the only person teaching church history to people training for the Methodist ministry. Mm. And as I sat in a room in front of 20 people in my year group, I thought to myself, they don't need history. They think they don't need it. They resent my being there because they want to get on to finding out which way to hold the baby and baptism and that sort of thing and and how to comfort the sick. Perfectly reasonable. They were not there to learn about history. Mm -hmm. And so gradually in the 12 years I spent on that staff, I learned ways of catching their eye Mm. and catching their ear. I learned how to present a story which I felt had integrity Mm -hmm. in ways which were interesting and also useful for Mm. them. And so when I started on on radio work and television work, it was that thought in mind. These were articulate people. They were Methodist preachers. But they had a general education, very general, uh, and often at different levels. So somehow you had to reach out to that group and and try and, of course, not always succeed Mm. in getting them to feel you're doing something useful. We've already mentioned it, but the the big moment that a lot of people are sort of marking and looking forward to this year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Mm. So is that something that we as Christians should be celebrating or apologising for? We should be remembering it. Uh, we should remember the the excellent things about it. And I think the excellent things would be the sense which Martin Luther had that you and I stand before God on our own and that although the church uh, and institutions may help us, ultimately we are on our own, particularly when we die. Uh, that's worth remembering. It's, a, it's an essential Protestant insight Bad things, well, it was a very destructive period and it was full of hatred. And it made people say, 
simple, violent, stupid things to each other. Uh, but we need to know about those and also know the great things and think of the wonderful things which came out of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther's hymns, for instance, uh, the, the, the reformed Protestant metrical psalm, uh, and preaching, the, the, the wonderful uh, uh, preaching of, say, John Wesley. Those are the great things. So it's a balance. But as long as you don't feel that there aren't good things and uh, 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 only within Protestantism mm. or only good things within Catholicism, then this is a very significant thing mm. to remember. Yes, it could arguably be a time where Protestants could learn where Catholics are coming from and vice versa. Is that something that needs to happen? Does there need to be almost a kind of healing? That's been talked about in some circles. Yeah, well, there already has been over the last, I'd say, 50, 70 years. Uh, Catholics have found that they were saying things which they thought were only Protestant. And Protestants have found insights in Catholicism which they were missing. Uh, One of the problems, for instance, in Protestantism in the Reformation was that it was terribly noisy. Uh, it was a religion of the word, it was a religion of preaching, it was a religion of extempore prayer and psalm, in metrical psalms and hymns. Very little silence. Mm. Protestants were afraid of silence. Mm. And uh, now in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, I think Protestants have rediscovered the value of silence, of, of the monastic life, for instance, which was one of the babies thrown out with the bathwater in the Reformation. Mm. So learning from uh, each other and remembering also that the Reformation tore a family apart. It tore the family of Western Latin Christianity apart so that Protestants and Catholics are both the heirs of the medieval church. And uh, it may not be necessary to knit that church together as an institution again, but it's a very healthy thing to see that we are actually siblings are there any common misconceptions about what actually took place in the reformation period i mean the classic one which gets mentioned all the time is in many people's minds what happened well martin luther went to the church in wittenberg and he nailed his 95 uh, thesis to the to the door some historians have said well there was probably no nail there's probably no (laughs) nailing um who knows if there were exactly what went on there so are there kind of misconceptions that we still believe about the reformation that turn out not to be true oh well yes i mean you're at that very detailed level i i I think uh, after a lifetime of brooding about it he probably did nail some theses because he'd done a similar thing the previous month Uh, on another subject okay Uh, And there is also the famous thing that Martin Luther is supposed to have said, here I stand, I can do no no other. Uh, I have it on my socks, actually. Really? (laughs) Just a very fine German joke, I think. Here (laughs) I stand, I can do no other. But uh, did he say it? I don't think he did. It's a marginal note in his works from about 30 years after his death. So uh, that sort of detail, well, Mm. who cares? But there are things which are matters of overall perspective which we need to remember if we are protestant with a sense of history we may remember that justification by faith alone is a big thing but we don't tend to remember that the other big thing about the protestant reformation was allowing clergy to marry which was an absolute revolution in the 16th century western church and it's not an issue anymore Mm. Uh, we don't seem to realize that that's one of the things which really excited people or repelled them Mm. in the 16th century. The idea of a clergyman being married absolutely disgusted some people. Mm. That's relevant to the present day. Mm. There was a sexual issue. We also forget 
that uh, the medieval church valued celibacy and virginity over marriage. Marriage was the second best. And what Protestants said, particularly Martin Luther, no, marriage is best. And virginity and celibacy are second best. It's a complete revolution. Mm. There's a big sexual change. So uh, if that can happen in one century, then other great sexual attitudes within Christianity can change as well. For those who aren't Christians, does something like the Protestant Reformation have ramifications for, for wider society as well? I imagine you'd say it does. It does because it still configures Europe. Uh, there's a Protestant Europe and a Catholic Europe, and uh, they uneasily mated uh, within the European Union, and, and it's a very good thing they were. But they, they, they have very different attitudes to life. Catholic countries tend to be much more hostile to the church mm. uh, because they were facing one monolithic Catholic church. Protestant countries have uh, faced down such hatred. Uh, we, 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 for instance, in this country, in, in England or Scotland, mm -hmm. we are not very anti-clerical, or we haven't been till very recent days, because clergy were not objects of power and fear in a way that they were in many Catholic countries. So lots of attitudes, uh, lots of ways of constructing society, even for people who are not Christians, are still there at the present day. Tell me a bit about how you view your faith and how it's changed over over time. I understand you still go to church, you still consider yourself part of the Church mm -hmm. of England, although a, yes. a, I guess a critical friend of the Church of England, if I can yep. put it that way. Yep. How has your faith changed over the years? Uh, I think it's become broader. I think I've uh, decided that some doctrines within it are really best put in the back cupboard or in a display case. I also uh, come to find a relationship to it which I feel is much more settled and satisfying. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I wrote that great book on Christianity was precisely to explore my own feelings right. about the Christian faith. And one of the things which happened as I wrote that book, which took about a year, was I found myself singing hymns. Mm. Uh, at the various points in it, particularly the Methodist section, mm -hmm. uh, and remembering the wonderful hymns of Methodism. And it reminded me that there are some things about uh, the Christian faith which are beyond dogma, which are about performance, for instance, or relationship to others, uh, which uh, can take you beyond doctrinal arguments. And you can have lovely things out of very contentious periods, so Methodists faced a lot of contention and they argued like hell amongst themselves. Mm. But they produced this wonderful music. So uh, I just glory in it, frankly. Uh, it, it's a huge excitement to be part of this movement, even when it's infuriating me. Mm. I understand you play the organ in church. I do. I, I played the organ when I was a student at college and still do. That's an enormous source of joy and contentment and satisfaction I can still do it and playing the organ is a very strenuous activity it's like going to the gym <laughs> if you have two hours uh, using your feet and your two hands uh, it's very good exercise and you end up very tired but you've beaten a bark fugue or something like that and that's a very nice feeling Excellent. and you've also given people pleasure I guess that is one of the areas of church history that is a little bit more upbeat as you say when you look at some of these ancient hymns they do contain incredible truth Yes, they do, uh, and they're, they're poetry. And poetry 
goes beyond propositions. It's not like x plus y equals, it's not like an equation. It's an expression of language, an exploration of language, which often takes you beyond language, particularly when you put it to music. Mm. And music uh, can be wordless too. And so much of the beautiful music of the church doesn't have words attached. And that's its power. Because ultimately God is not about words. God may be in one of expression, word, logos, but God is beyond such things. And music is one way of getting there. What would you say to somebody, perhaps perhaps a gay person, who would say, look, given not only the church history, which has been terrible at times, but given the church's current treatment of gay people, how could I ever come to call myself a Christian or have any kind of faith in a God when when his church is treating me in this way? I'd be really interested to hear your take on that, because clearly you have come to a position where, despite the way you feel like you have been treated terribly and you and the history we've already spoken about, you still would call yourself a Christian? Mm. Well, I'd say to them, look beyond the church, look to God. And remember that uh, idea of the church being the body of Christ covered in wounds. It wasn't me who made that up. It was actually uh, my boss at uh, Theological College mm. who said that to me. Remember that the church is the body of Christ and the church is full of wounds and that many of the people who behave very badly to you, gay Christian, whatever, are themselves very wounded, and that's why they treated you very badly. It, try and understand them, which is not to let them off the hook, but to look at the problem uh, while you are still looking at God. Mm. You, you've... You know, you're clearly in favour of, of gay marriage and you've already said you want to see the Church of England move in that direction. Mm. But we are now entering a point in the debate where it seems to me that people on both sides um, are often in agreement that if the Church's position is going to change, it's going to cause some kind of a split. Is that something you want to see? No, and I don't think it'll really happen. Uh, people have been threatening splits in the Church almost as long as I've been alive and uh, I am never particularly convinced. Of course, some people do split. They go away and they form a little church. Uh, in French, it's called Petite Église, and that's got a particular tone to it because Petite Église, little churches, look in on themselves. They go out on a particular issue and they spend the rest of their existence banging on about that particular issue long after it matters. It matters nothing to anybody else. There may be splits, but I do not see the church splitting over this, I, I, I listen to a lot of noise. I hear the sound of toys hitting the floor, having been thrown out of the pram. Mm -hmm. But I do not see a body which is in terminal trouble. When I look at an Anglican congregation, I think of the people kneeling before my dad when he was giving communion. Half of them probably believed what they were getting was bread and wine and nothing else. And the other half thought they were receiving God. Now, that's been the case since the 16th century in the Church of England. Yeah. Something which is a matter on which people simply cannot agree mm. and taking utterly opposite positions. That's far more important than sex. Uh, so let's simply agree to disagree mm. and not throw our toys out. I of suppose the, you know, the counter to that would be yes, of course, how you understand communion is an important issue, but it's not relating to sin or salvation, is it? Whereas the issue around homosexuality for a lot of people relates to 
whether you are obeying God or not. That's that's a fundamental issue more so than what communion means. Yeah, well, I just think they need to see that obeying God may not necessarily be uh, adhering to a highway code, which they see in various bits of the Bible. Uh, there's more to it than that. Mm. Journalists like me are often attacked for inserting bias as it's seen, into stories and for not being impartial. Do historians have sometimes a similar problem? I'm thinking of some of the, the scope of your work has been enormous um, when you're looking, as you say, at 3,000 years of, of Christian history. Is it possible to tell that story without any personal bias? Is it possible to be strictly objective as no, a historian? absolutely not. Uh, we're all imperfect human beings. We all bring our biases to the story. What are yours? Oh, my biases, uh, I like rogues. Uh, I like discovering people's discreditable motives behind apparently pure statements of disinterest. Uh, And I recognise those things. I I like the thoughtful. Uh, I like the nuanced in history. I quite like the losers, actually. So I need to recognise those. But I also need to tell my readers or my viewers my biases, because that should give them a sense of confidence in what I'm doing. Very often I lay out in the introduction of my books what I think about things in order that they can go on and read them and they say, oh yeah, he would say that, wouldn't he? (laughs) And I think that gives them a sense of confidence to Mm. have the conversation which they have with me uh, and that means a common conversation between us with the past. Mm. So no, all historians are biased. I think of one of my colleagues who I'm very fond of who is a, a Roman Catholic and writes books about the Reformation, in which you would never for a moment think he was not a Roman Catholic. You open okay. any page, and this is a Catholic historian. Right. However, I have other Roman Catholic friends who also are very good historians who you wouldn't know were Catholics. They are historians who are Catholics mm. and not Catholic historians. It seems to me that those historians who are Catholics are doing the right thing. They may say in their introduction, well, I, this is my background, come mm-hmm. from a Catholic background, but I'm going on to try and explore this story mm. as, as neutrally as I can, knowing that I can never be neutral. We've spoken a lot about past history. I wanted to end by looking ahead a little bit. And clearly, you know, your own life is, is caught up in this to a certain extent because you and I live in a period of Christian history. And it's mm. interesting to think about this period we live. We've, we've said probably far too much already about the current debates over human sexuality. We'll put that to one side. But looking at the current church and the the future of the church i'm thinking particularly in the uk which is our our context Mm. are you optimistic about the future of the church in this country yes i am uh there are things the church has lost which is automatic respect and that's a good thing it can be abused uh what we haven't lost is a sense of continuity with the past and it's interesting seeing the bits of christianity which are flourishing for instance the cathedrals of the Church of England, Mm. uh, a rather unexpected thing. Cathedrals didn't expect that. So one thing about future Christianity should be the valuing of its past, but also the constant surprise of what's going to happen next. I mean, the the flavour of the month at the moment, the last century, has been Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, the spirit. Those are clearly going to go on. But the Mm -hmm. great thing about such movements is that they are not, in the end, Bible-based. 
They are not dependent on the word. They are not identical to evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. In fact, in their early days, they were opposed to it. So where is the Pentecostal spirit going to go in the church? Mm. That's a very open, interesting mm. question. And we'll find that out over the next century. I think a lot of, a lot of evangelicals would, would agree that Pentecostalism emphasizes the spirit over the word if you wanted to make that distinction. But of course, there are plenty of, of Christians, including in this country, who would see those two things together. They would. Um, Their rhetoric at the moment is the same. And that's an accident of history. It's an accident which goes back to the way in which Pentecostalism emerged in the United States. It's the way, again, of an accident of history in the 1940s when theological education among Pentecostals was taken down evangelical lines. But the, these are eddies of history. They are not necessarily the future. Do you not buy the argument that Christianity is, in general, decline, less and less people are going to church? Do, do those sort of statistics not concern you so much? No, they don't. Uh, the, a particular sort of Christianity is in a steep decline. It's the automatic practice of, of a society being Christian, uh, which was just visible when I was a boy mm -hmm. in that little village. But now it's gone. Uh, interesting to look at Scandinavia, where actually the, the two are curiously aligned, community and church. Not many people go to church regularly, but they virtually all use it. Mm. They use it for getting married, they yeah. use it for burial, uh, they pay a tax to it. So that's a very different relationship to our own in this country. Mm. Uh, yes, things will change, of course they will. And we may find ourselves with churches which apparently have no purpose except beauty and, and contact with the past. I would say that of the, the, the 9,000 medieval parish churches in England, they have never been better looked after, cherished or loved than they are at the present day. Now, that's a huge asset for a faith, and it's not one to be lost. We were talking a few minutes ago about that distinction of are you a, a Christian who happens to be a historian or are you a historian who's a Christian? I guess the Christian element of that would have to say that as a Christian, according to Jesus, he will build the church and even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So there's not going to be an, an end to church history in that respect. You could say that. Um, there may be an end to our planet, uh, in which case I don't suppose that will worry God in the slightest, <laughs> uh, apart from his natural compassion. Uh, God is not confined to this small floating ball, and we shouldn't think that... Uh, the approach to God is confined in that way either. Well, let's hope that this planet will be around for a few more years. What does the future hold for you? Are you going to be carrying on with more book projects and more broadcasting? Oh, yeah. you know, historians don't give up, you know. <laughs> Not like being a milkman. Uh, so I'll go on until I have nothing more to say. From the huge amount of information you've so kindly shared with us today, I imagine there's still more to come. I think there might be. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us today on the programme, Dermot McCullough. It'd be nice to be with you. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining with me over the past hour as I've interviewed Dermot McCulloch. If you'd like to hear more interviews with leading Christians, please do head to our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You can also now access this show as a podcast. Why not join the thousands who are listening on the go around the world to the interviews that we conduct here at Premier Christian Radio? Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and all the details are there on how to access this 
as a podcast. And just finally, before we go, one final reminder that you can get the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine right now for free if you go to our website. Premier Christianity, of course, being the magazine that sponsors this show, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Coming up next, though, here on Premier Christian Radio is Dave Rose with Premier Playback. <laughs> 